Well, good morning. Uh, good morning to all of you, and Merry Christmas. Good morning, Balcony, and good morning, Coldwater crew. Uh, it's good to have the Coldwater campus folks with us this morning as well. Uh, this is actually Christmas Sunday. It doesn't feel like Christmas Sunday. This year, the way that uh, the calendar worked, this feels like post-Christmas, doesn't it? Uh, technically speaking, Christmas Sunday is always the Sunday uh, following Christmas Eve. And that makes sense, obviously, if you think about it. Uh, if you did a Christmas service on the 24th morning and then invited everybody back for Christmas Eve service, that would feel like you were going forward and then reversing and stuff. So what well, we typically do Christmas Sunday, the Sunday after Christmas, uh, after the 25th. But as a result, uh, we don't feel in the Christmas Eve headspace. Uh, maybe you are not sure what headspace you're in because you're just fuzzy from four or five days of staying up late, uh, eating way too much sugar and turkey, and uh, you're not sure what season it is, and you're not sure how you got here, uh, we are glad you're here regardless, uh, even if you're in recovery mode as opposed to wonder mode. But actually, to be honest with you, the passage that we're looking at this morning is probably very well suited to people in that particular headspace. Uh, this is kind of an after-Christmas passage. Uh, we're looking at Luke 2 today, Luke 2. 22 to 35. So if you have your Bible uh, with you, you can open there. That's on page 857 in the church Bibles. And this is a story that actually takes place about six weeks after Christmas. Not quite six weeks, but almost six weeks after Christmas. Uh, Jesus is uh, just a few days short of six weeks old at this point. This is the story of Simeon's prophecy over the baby Jesus in the temple. Now, we know uh, how long it's been since Christmas uh, because it takes place on the day that Mary and Joseph go to the temple to give the offering associated with purification after the birth of a child. Leviticus 12, 6-7 says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Now, if the mother was of modest means, the text goes on to say, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So that's what this is all about. Mary and Joseph are ceremonially unclean because they've just had a child. And so they couldn't attend temple functions until about the six-week mark. And when they do return to temple functions, they bring an offering scaled to their financial capacity. Now, notice that no mention is made of the redemption price that would normally be offered for a firstborn male child. In Numbers 18, 15 to 16, it says, "...the firstborn of man you shall redeem." And their redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 garaz. So, a little bit of backstory here. In the Old Testament, originally, the original plan was that the priesthood in Israel would be made up of all the firstborn sons. By the way, you spot that. Uh, we get so used to thinking of the 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 Levites is the priestly tribe, but you spot this in the early chapters of Exodus. Uh, remember when they get to the mountain, they get to Mount Sinai, and they start doing worshipy things and religious things, and the original people who were taking care of all the sacrifices are the firstborn sons. 
But, but then, if you remember, uh, later in Exodus, in Exodus 32 and 33, we have the golden calf incident, where the people fall into idolatry. And the only uh, group of people that stands with Moses and that uh, does not slide into idolatry are the Levites. And so God actually rewards them. He gives them the, the priesthood as their perpetual inheritance. And so from that point on, any time an Israelite family had a firstborn son, they would go to the priest at the right time, and they would offer this five-shekel offering, and that would go to the tribe of Levites to support the Levites in the, the priesthood. And so they refer to that as redemption or buying back your son. You'd take your little baby boy, and you'd say, I know this baby boy was supposed to be a priest, but now I know the Levites are doing it, so here's my five shekels, and I'll take my son home, and he'll, he'll live a regular life. But notice in this story... There's, there's no mention of five shekels being paid to anybody. Uh, now, in our minds, we, we think that because two things are happening at once, Mary and Joseph are doing the purification thing, and it says, and they presented Jesus, we think the offering is for Jesus. But if we compare what the Old Testament actually says about these various offerings with what Luke actually says in this story, it becomes crystal clear that the offering in this story is for Mary, not for Jesus. And you say, wow, pastor. You've clearly done your homework this week, but why in the world does that matter? Who cares? It matters because it means that Jesus isn't being redeemed or bought out of the priesthood. Quite the opposite, actually. If Jesus is being presented in the temple, because you actually didn't have to take your baby to the temple, you just had to take your baby to a priest. If Jesus is being presented in the temple and no redemption price is being paid, it means that actually he's being consecrated like baby Samuel back in the Old Testament. I. Howard Marshall says here, the facts that the scene of the presentation incident is in the temple, no ransom price is mentioned, and the child is present, which he didn't have to be, show that Jesus is not here being redeemed, but consecrated to the Lord. By the way, this explains why when Jesus was 12 years old, do you remember that story? It's, this, it's the childhood story that troubles us, isn't it? We're like, hmm, it seems like Jesus, not, he's not quite being saucy, but, you know, not 100% happy with this story. The, Jesus, the family of Jesus goes uh, to Jerusalem for the festival, and, um, and the family, they start leaving, and then they realize, like, a couple days later, Jesus is not with them. And you wonder, like, how does that happen? How do you get two days into a journey and realize, hey, the children are missing? But anyway, uh, you know, <laughs> back in the day when you traveled in tribe before helicopter parents and all that kind of stuff, your whole family was probably traveling. There were probably 78 of you with aunties and uncles and nephews and nieces. Okay, and then they realize Jesus isn't here. And so they go back and they, they find him in the temple and Jesus is like, why are you all stressed out? Uh, he's like, did, did you not understand I had to be here? And Mary's like, what? She's starting to put all the pieces together. What Jesus is saying is, like Samuel, it is now time for me to begin serving the Lord full time. Isn't that interesting? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here in this story, Jesus is not 12 years old. He's six weeks old. And his parents are giving an offering for their purification. And Jesus is being consecrated to holy service. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And 
to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which we remember is the offering for their purification. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation." That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to zoom in today on uh, Simeon's encounter with Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. We don't know a whole lot about Simeon. We always refer to him as, as an old man. But actually, if you look at the text, the text doesn't say that he's an old man. It just says that once he had seen Jesus, he was ready to die. But actually, if you think about it, All of us should be in that position, right? Once you've met Jesus, you should be ready to die. Amen? Amen. So we don't know how old he was. Uh, All we know about him was that he was righteous and devout, or devout, I should say, verse 25, and that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's an Old Testament phrase. It's an Old Testament way of saying that he has been waiting for the gift from God that will bring comfort and strength and healing to the covenant community through the long-awaited arrival of Messiah. Simeon knew that a child would come who would bruise the head of our enemy. We just sang about that. Uh, That song that we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is a very theologically rich song. Not all the Christmas carols are. Uh, Some of them are Hallmark cards set to music. Um, But but that one is is good. To, To bruise the head of the, did you catch? To bruise the head of the serpent in us. Isn't that interesting? And to restore the image of God that had been effaced through the fall of Adam. That's some significant theology right there. Simeon knew that was coming. He he knew that a child would come who would bruise the head of our enemy, who would atone for our sin and rebellion, and who would pour out the spirit of holiness such that all those who believe in him would be enabled to reclaim their original status and dignity. Simeon was waiting for that. And when he saw Jesus being presented in the temple, he realized that God had shown him that. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Isn't that good? Salvation is not a plan. It's not a purpose. Salvation is a person. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the plan. Jesus is God's salvation. Praise the Lord. Simeon says four things in this encounter. He says two of these things. While he's blessing God, uh, thanking God for the gift of the child. And then he says two further things when he's speaking directly to Mary. So we'll just take a minute and go through each of those things. And I'm not sure how much is behind. This has been an unusual week. I know you don't have anything in your bulletin because uh, we were Christmasing, Christmas 
ing. Uh, I think that's a verb. Uh, celebrating Christmas as well, and so wrote the sermon later in the week. So I'm not sure what you have there, but I will be a little bit more pedantic this week so that if you're a note taker, you can catch all the headings, and I'm not sure if they'll be on the screen or not. But we'll walk through all four of these things. First of all, while Simeon was blessing God, he says that Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Oh, look, we do have things. Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He says that in verse 32. What does that mean? Well, this one's pretty easy because uh, he, he, what he says actually flows out of uh, an Old Testament scripture reference. He's referring there to a prophecy about Messiah contained in Isaiah 49.6, where God actually speaks to the Messiah before he sends the Messiah into the world. It's a very cool prophecy. Uh, and he says this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So God the Father says this to God the Son before Jesus enters the world. Isn't that cool? He says, Jesus, we've got a mission for you, um, but you are too exalted a character. It's not like I'm sending some angel or something. It's not like I'm, I'm sending, you know, Elijah. Like, we're sending the second person of the Trinity here. And so this has got to be a big job. And it can't just be saving Israel. It's got to be bigger than that. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So even even though it was the Jewish people who were most eagerly looking for the arrival of Messiah, the first thing we're told is that he will bring salvation to the Gentiles. That's a bit surprising. It's a bit surprising if you were reading the Bible chronologically. If you started in Genesis and you're reading and this is the first time you've heard this story and you get here, you'd be like, that's surprising. But of course, if you've already read the Bible, you've read Acts and whatnot, then you know actually that kind of fits. We remember in Acts 13 when Paul was on his first missionary journey with Barnabas and they're preaching the gospel in a synagogue and we are surprised that the Jewish people are not eating this up. Because you think, like, you've been waiting for this. You've been watching for this. And, they, and then they hear it, and they take a hard pass. And so Paul says, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. Now listen to what he quotes. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes Isaiah 49.6. Something God the Father said to God the Son before sending the Son of the world. He says, that's why Jesus has come into the world. He's come to bring salvation to the Gentiles. I'm an apostle of the gospel, so it's my job to shine the light on Jesus. So he says, all right, game on. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't that interesting? So Paul steps into this prophecy. He says, hey, the Bible always said that Jesus, his mission was going to be bigger than Jews. He was going to go to all the nations of the world. And so, listen, he says, if, if you're not interested, no worries. We'll do that other part first. We'll take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, seeing how the story works out and remembering how Acts ends, Acts actually ends, because Paul did the same kind of routine. Every town he went in, he'd go to the Jews first, and when the, you know, some Jews would always believe, but many would not, and then they'd go to the Gentiles. He does that for the whole thing. At the end of the Acts of the Apostles, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem basically say, yeah, this is not for us, and Paul says, no worries, we're going to take this message to the Gentiles. But knowing how that story works out 
should not lead us to the conclusion that the gift of Messiah bypasses the Jews. That's not at all what the original prophecy says. And we know from Romans 9 through 11 that God is not finished with the Jewish people. So we know that. There's glory for the Jews. The second thing Simeon says here, while blessing God for the gift of this child, is that Jesus will be for glory to your people Israel. So what does that mean? That's an unusual expression. Will be for glory to your people Israel. Grammatically speaking, so if you just look at the sentence and, you know, Greek sentences uh, are kind of like math equations. And, And I'm convinced in the providence of God, that's why... You know, Jesus arranged history the way it did. When, when Jesus came into the world at that moment in time, Greek was the, the language of uh, the international language. So everybody had their local dialogue or dialect, right? So if you were a Parthian, you had your dialect. If you were a Cappadocian, you had your dialect, right? If you were Jewish, you spoke Aramaic and a little, little bit of Hebrew as well. Everybody had their dialect, but everybody also spoke Greek. Greek was everybody's second language. And, of course, it was some people's first language. But it was, it was the lingua franca of the world. And Greek is like an equation. A Greek sentence is like a math equation. This equals this. This plus this plus this equals that. And it's very clear what everything, what everything is doing in the sentence. Grammatically, though, this sentence has two possibilities in terms of what it means. First of all, it could be understood as a reference to the fact that, that Israel in Jesus will see the glory of God. So he'll be glory for Israel in the sense that he will come and they will see who God is. They will see his essential character and goodness as they look at Jesus. And of course, we know that is true because John said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So that definitely did happen. And so maybe that is what Simeon is prophesying. Maybe he's saying, this child's going to grow up. And you're going to see in him everything you need to know about God the Father. You're going, to, you're going to see everything you need to know about God. And, of course, Jesus said that. Remember Philip said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, Philip, have you been with me so long? I imagine that was the tone, by the way. I'm inserting the tone. There's no tone in the tone. But have you been with me so long and you do not know? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so maybe that's what Simeon is saying. This child's going to grow up. And you're going to see in him everything you need to know about God. Could mean that. Or it could mean that Jesus will be glory for Israel. That is to say, he will do for Israel what Israel could never do for itself. He will open up the wells of salvation that Israel so often fouled and obscured. He will be Israel for Israel, and in so doing, will bring glory to Israel. Could mean that as well. And of course, it could be that we're intended to hear it in both ways. James R. Edwards seems to take that approach. He says here, Jesus the Messiah reveals the heart of God and the essence of Israel's scriptures and prophecies. So he puts those together. Yes, Jesus reveals to Israel God's glory, but then Jesus also reveals for Israel all that God had entrusted to Israel. So putting that all together, the substance of Simeon's blessing is that he is thanking God for the gift of this child who will bring salvation to the nations 
and also give a clear revelation of God's character and goodness to the Jewish people first and for the Jewish people forever. Praise the Lord. All right, after Simeon blesses God for the gift of the child, he turns and blesses Mary and Joseph. While blessing them, he says some things to Mary specifically about Jesus. Look at verse 34. Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, we'll skip that bracketed part. We'll come back to it in a minute. So, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. All right? What does that mean? Once again, we're helped by the fact that what Simeon says is filled with well-known Old Testament references, particularly that first part about many in Israel falling and rising. Isaiah 8, 14 to 15, for example, says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So the idea here is that when the Messiah comes, he'll be like a giant stone in the middle of the road that people will trip over because he is not what they expected. That's what you trip over, right? You trip over things you did not expect. Uh, uh, In the winter, many times, if it's snowing, I'll park my car on a, you know, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever. I'll park my car into the, uh, whatever you would call that thing, the, the rain cover out, out front of the, the front doors there. Normally I go out through the side, but like I said, if it's snowing, I'll park under there. And of course, when you leave the church at 5.30 at night in the winter, it's dark as sin, right? And, uh, and so I, but I know this place like the back of my hand. And, uh, and so I will come out through that door where my office is, and I will just weave, weave my way out. Unless someone has left a table in the aisle, in which case my sanctification will be tested. Because <laughs> you stumble over things you don't expect to be there. And, and, and that's what, what the text is saying. You know, Jesus is going to come. When the Messiah comes, he's actually not going to be what people are expecting. And many will stumble, fall, and be broken. Now, Jesus knew the Old Testament very well. He knew this line of anticipation. He knew that prophecy. He knew that imagery, and he stepped into it. He said to a group of people who were offended by his teaching, what, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Jesus understood himself as potentially offensive. He knew that people would look at him and say, no way, no way. No way is that the way of salvation. No way is that necessary. There is no way that I am so sinful that God had to take on flesh and die a brutal death on a bloody cross. I am offended by that suggestion. There are people who say that. And they're not entirely wrong. Christianity is offensive. If you backwards engineer Christianity, you discover that the base premises in Christianity are that you are a sinner. 
You are more sinful than you understand, and you are more lost than you realize. You are not confused. You do not need help. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are a hopeless cause, and every time you try to build a bridge to God, you build a bridge to nowhere that collapses into the sea of sin and nonsense. You, you, you don't need help. You need salvation. That's, if you backwards engineer Christianity, that's what, you, that's what you get. So to become a Christian... You have to admit two very offensive things. Number one, you have to admit that you're a sinner. Number two, you have to admit that you need help from God. And if you refuse to acknowledge those things, there is literally no way for you to be saved. If your pride keeps you from admitting those things, then your pride will damn you. Just like Grandma used to say. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You can only enter the kingdom of God through the doggy door. And so if you refuse to stoop, if you refuse to get down on your knees, then you will be outside in the dark forever. Jesus is going to teach people that, Simeon says. He's going to strike a blow against human pride. He's going to push people down and then lift people up. That's the plan. That's why he's come. And it's not just Simeon that says that. Jesus says that. After telling the story of the proud Pharisee and the humble tax collector in Luke 18, Jesus said, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Human history is like a conveyor belt that is heading straight for the bar of Jesus. So if you won't bow, he will knock you down and sort you out. That's what Simeon is saying. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is the light of salvation, but he is also the sword of division. As Jesus himself said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's an interesting passage to read in the tail end of the Christmas season, isn't it? At Christmas, we're more aware than probably at any other time of the year how much our family means to us. And that's okay. It's, it's supposed to be that way. But, but Jesus is saying, he wants us to know up front, you know, Jesus is not one of those salespersons where he just is so eager to close the deal that you don't read the fine print until you get home and you realize, what? Uh, I didn't realize that. And what? No, no, Jesus tells you all that stuff up front. He said, I want you to understand. All humanity, I want you to, Jesus, I want you to visualize. All humanity is on this conveyor belt. They're all coming to this bar. It's the sort of division. And, and as that sword, as they come towards the sword, as the sword comes towards them, every human being is going to have to lean one way or the other. And you understand, some are going to go this way and some are going to go that way. You get that. He's saying, I want you to understand, that is going to divide families. 
That is going to set children against their parents. That is going to set a man against his father, a woman against her mother, siblings against each other. That's just the way it is. Jesus isn't saying he wants it to be that way. He is just saying that is inevitable. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in who he is and what he said and what he accomplished, and if you bow before all that in humility and faith, understand that your family members, some of your family members, will read that as judgment. Have you noticed that? And sometimes it's like, we're not saying anything. It's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I've never pointed my finger at you and said, you know, blah, 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 blah. But you are hearing that inside because of what I believe about Jesus. My faith about Jesus is interpreted by you as judgment towards you. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? It's not entirely irrational. Because they understand. They're, put, they're connecting the dots. If you believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, well, by implication, unless you believe that your brother or sister is Jesus, then you believe that they are also a sinner in need of a Savior. If you believe that you are hopeless apart from the grace of God in Christ, then by implication, you believe that they are hopeless apart from the grace of God in Christ. If you believe that you are surely damned apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, well, then by implication, you must believe that they are surely damned apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they may not be happy to hear that even if you never actually say that. Because they understand the implications of what you believe. In fact, the funny thing is, the better your family understands your faith, the better you get at sharing your faith, the the clearer you are, it actually creates more pressure. And that pressure will result in one of two things happening. More of your family members will join you. That's a blessing. You know, uh, I, I think I've told this before, and I probably tell it wrong every time because, uh, well, both my wife and my mother remind me. Every time I tell a story, I get some detail wrong. It's usually very minor, but uh, I'm not a great remember of all the details. But uh, my mom was the first person to come to Christ in her family. But it was over, over about two decades, almost all of her siblings and parents, it just, it just spread. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But, of course, we know that it doesn't always work that way. And, and, and sometimes the, the, the pressure forces people to actually divide and become, become very hostile. Now, not, she'll remind me afterwards, so I'm going to get this detail right now. Not all of her siblings and family members came to Christ, but a great many did. It was, you could watch the ripples go out. But it creates pressure. The more verbal you are about your faith, the more open you are about your faith, the more pressure that puts on people to either join you in that faith as they wrestle with those implications and own them or to separate from you, to be offended by you, to reject you. Now, we haven't experienced as much of this in Canada as most believers do. When you talk to believers in the international community, I became good friends with David Sharma over the several trips that I made to India and the many months or the many weeks and months uh, that I, I spent uh, teaching there, we spent a lot of time talking, and, and it's very interesting to listen to the testimony of a Christian from another culture, because this is not surprising news to them. They all understand when you become a Christian, 
it creates massive division in your family. David Sharma was the first Christian in his family, and he was immediately, I think, his, his, if I recall, his family had a, I'm looking at Christine because you were there when you were here. His family had a funeral for him, and I'm putting that story. Either way, his family rejected him. He, he was dead to them. He never got, like, they didn't want to see him again. Now, later, many years later, several of them came, came to Christ. But in the international community, this, this is par for the course. And I will say this. As nominal Christianity begins to disappear from Canada and our friends and family members settle into a more hardened materialism and atheism, this will become more common here. Christianity will create division in our families. You need to prepare yourself for that phenomenon. Jesus stands astride the path of human history, and he demands a response. If he is who he says he is, then we are who he says we are, and we need to bow before him as our Savior and Lord. And if we don't, then he will cut us off and sort us out, because he is who he says he is, whether we acknowledge that or not. That's what Simeon is saying here, when he says that Jesus has been appointed for the falling and rising of many so that the hearts of human beings will be revealed. He is saying that when you come before Jesus, when the conveyor belt brings you before Jesus, how you respond in that encounter tells the truth about who you are. If you bow, it says that you know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You will go down and then up. But if you stand in defiance before Jesus, what that says about you is that you are a rebel and that you are unfit for the eternal kingdom of God and you will be knocked off and pushed out. Jesus is the rock that divides the river of human history. Second thing Simeon says is not just to Mary, it is for Mary. He says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I think we know what that means, don't we? Simeon is saying that no one, not even the person, not even the human being that Jesus will grow to love the most, is exempt from the pain of this process. Division is bloody and messy. We're all connected. In fact, we're more connected than we tend to realize. I think one of, one of the things, for example, that I have a hard time convincing young people of, and I'm not just talking about my own kids. I was a youth pastor for uh, 15 years, basically, and spent a lot of time working with kids. And kids uh, are inclined to believe that they're independent thinkers. Like, oh, I'm making my own decisions. And it's like, hmm, are you? Uh, we're really, really, really influenced by our culture, by our teachers, by our friends. That's why the Bible has to say, like, do not be deceived, which is a way of saying, you are deceived. Like, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Like, you understand, you choose your friends, you choose your destiny, right? Like, we are not independent thinkers. Our, our brains are adaptive and, and constantly relating to the people around us. We are constantly involved in groupthink. Again, we, we find that offensive, but it's like, tons of evidence to support that, okay? We, we think we are connected. 
And, you, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. I don't know why we're offended by that. The, the Bible literally says at the beginning in the Genesis account, it is not good that the man should be alone. Meaning, you were literally designed for networking and communication. You were designed to live in a network of relationships. So we are not alone. We have not lived alone. We do not live alone. We live lives that are highly connected to other people. And so, of course, inevitably, this process of redemption and separation is going to be painful. And no one will be exempt. Not even Mary. The sword will pierce her own soul, too. I confess that I sometimes uh, feel envious. Resentment would be way too strong a word, but envy would, I think, be about right. I feel envy sometimes towards people in this church whose children and grandchildren are all walking with the Lord. Many of you know that not all my loved ones are walking with the Lord. I have an, an adult child who's not walking currently with the Lord. And when she told me that, it, it broke my heart. And I'll be honest with you, uh, it made me angry too. After the weeping, and there was lots of that, there was gnashing of teeth, right? God, how could you do this to me? Like, are you kidding me, God? I did everything you're supposed to do. I, I, I prayed for, for my child every, every day by name. I read the Bible at the supper table. We sent our kids to Christian camp. Like, we got a good marriage. We love each other. We've, we, I think we've set a good example. We've, what in the world's going on? And God, I'm not some professional Christian, right? These people could fire me today, and I would wake up tomorrow at exactly the same time and do exactly the same things. Do you not see that, God? I am 100% in. So what's up? Do you love that guy more than you love me? Is that what this is? Good thing God can handle those kinds of prayers, right? No lightning bolts close at hand on that day. <laughs> if the Psalms tell us anything, is that God can handle sharp prayers loaded with emotion. You know, God hears that prayer. God heard me, felt me, gave me the strength. And, and just to be clear, like, I got faith for a good outcome. I'm playing the long game. But I'm just saying, a sword has pierced my soul too. No one is exempt from this reality. If Mary is going to have pain in this process, then I'm going to have pain in this process. You're going to have pain in this process. There's no avoiding that. Jesus is the sword that divides. Everyone in your family is going to come face to face with Jesus. They're going to come face to face with this sword, and they're going to turn one way or the other. And here's the thing I want you to understand. You can't let go of Jesus to chase down your loved ones who turn away. You can't. You can't start compromising on truth. You, you, you can't leave the way, the truth, and the life in order to gather up straying loved ones and bring them back. No, no, no. You need to hold on to Jesus. And what this forces you to do is it forces you to stand with Jesus and to commit the cause to him. It forces you to stand with Jesus and to pray because he can reach into places your arm is too short to reach into. He can have conversations in the inside of a human heart that you don't get to have. His voice can never be silenced, whereas, as you know, your voice can. 
So you've got to stand with Jesus and feel these mixed emotions. You have to do that. You stand with Jesus and you feel joy and pain. You stand with Jesus and you feel gladness and sorrow. You stand with Jesus and you feel faith and desperation. No one is promised an absence of tears this side of eternity. When do we get an absence of tears? Do you remember when all the tears will be wiped away? If you're doing the RMM Bible reading plan, you read about this yesterday. Revelation 21, 1 to 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that's what's going on here, brothers and sisters. Through this child who's coming, we've been talking about for the last five weeks, God is making all things new. In this process, Simeon says, there will be falling and there will be rising. There will be offense and there will be faith. There will be death and there will be life. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Are you ready for that? Have you counted the cost? It's going to be hard. It's going to be long. It's going to be painful and bloody. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Even still, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are, we are mindful today that this baby whose birth we have celebrated for the last five weeks is the sword of division. He will cut through human history like a hot knife through butter. He will divide nations, and we feel our nation being divided. He will divide families, and we feel our families being divided. But Lord, in the end, he will gather people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and family. Lord, he will gather us together into one forever family. And death and crying and mourning and pain shall be no more. Lord, of course, our heart's desire is to see as many of our loved ones included in that future forever family. And so, Lord, we would ask that we would seize these opportunities that we have. Lord, we ask that you would give us help to keep Christ before our loved ones. Lord, they would turn away. Lord, we pray for as many opportunities as possible to put Christ before them. Help us to do that. Help us to show them Christ in the way that we live, but help us also to speak Christ, for how can they believe without hearing? Lord, help us to do that. We sometimes are so concerned to preserve the relationship that we don't realize that 
It's actually not an option. Lord, when we try to preserve the relationship at the expense of speaking the truth, all we're revealing is that we have a very limited time horizon in our minds because the relationship cannot be preserved. The sword will eventually divide. And so we need to err on the side of speaking the truth and presenting Christ. But that is hard for us, Lord, because idolatry lives in our hearts. There are things in this life that are good things that we treat like God things. And for many of us in North America, that is our family. And so for many of us, Lord, in the next decade, the test of faith will be, do we leave Jesus to maintain relationship with those who have left Jesus? Or do we stand with Jesus and trust him and in prayer wrestle for the souls of our loved ones? Give us strength for these things, Lord. This is the hardest challenge we will ever face. This is the sword that will pierce our souls, Lord, but you are the healer of our souls, the remaker of our future, and the restorer of all that the devourer has taken. And so we trust you with these things. We ask for strength in Jesus' name.